The scripture reading this morning is from Titus chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, and sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are, teach, they are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is the word of the Lord for our church and is given for our good. Well, thank you so much, Renee. Let's pray before we turn our attention to this passage. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would work powerfully through this, your word, and that these words, which have challenged and encouraged your people for thousands of years, would be used to encourage and challenge us this morning. Might we understand more and more our identity in Christ and serve him faithfully. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's only one sculpture that the artist Michelangelo signed. He completed the sculpture later in his life. It was said to be his pride and joy. I don't know if you know which one it is, but it's the Piata, the full-grown Jesus of Nazareth, after having been crucified, laying across the lap of his mother, Mary. This beautiful sculpture sat for 500 years in St. Peter's Basilica, untouched, adorned by many who came and uh, took it in and see, always seen as one of these sort of exemplar sculptures from the hands of Michelangelo. But what you may or may not know is that on May 21st, 1972, a 33-year-old man named Lazio Toth jumped over the railing, separating the people from the sculpture, and with the geologist's hammer, attacked the sculpture, landing 15 blows. Fragments of the sculpture went everywhere as the marble, uh, as the marble pieces uh, shot through the air. However, if you've ever been to uh, St. Peter's Basilica, you've probably seen this statue. And unless you've read the little description off to the side, you probably had no idea that this attack took place against this statue. That's because almost immediately after the attack, after the man was apprehended, the artistic community, especially those who worked in marble, came together and asked what should they do. And for months, using microscopes and all kinds of detailed instruments, they pulled together all the fragmented pieces, some smaller than a blade of grass. It's said that they even collected the dust. And using glue that is unperceptive to the human eye, they repaired the piata. 
And now if you're ever in Vatican City at St. Peter's Basilica, you can see the sculpture and there is no way you will see any of the repair work. The masterpiece was restored. There's only one piece of art God signed his name to. No animal, not even the angels, did God sign his name upon. It's humanity that was made after God's own image. You are a masterpiece, and the story of the Bible is a story of this masterpiece being attacked. Someone jumped over the protective rail in the Garden of Eden, and with lies and deception struck a blow into God's masterpiece, and chaos ensued. Moral, spiritual, physical chaos, destruction took places, pieces flew everywhere like dust. And the story of the Bible is God wrestling through how he is going to put back together his masterpiece. We've been looking at Paul's letter to his protege, Titus, and he has uh, instructed Titus, this uh, younger man, a man that he probably shared the gospel with and is now sending him off to the island of Crete as a fellow minister. He's instructed him to reign in the chaos of Crete. The island is filled with liars, uh, lazy gluttons. The culture has had a toxic influence on the church. There's also a Jewish movement uh, on the island that is seeming to have an impact on the church. And Paul is saying this to Timothy, or to Titus, I'm sorry, in this passage. He's saying God's masterpiece can still be seen on this island of Crete, but here is how the repairs are going to take place. And in this passage, Paul is going to answer how the marred image of God is going to be repaired not only in Crete, but also here in Toronto and in your life. There's two questions I want to look at this morning. How will the image be repaired? And second, where the repair work will appear most visibly. So first, let's ask, how will this image be repaired? And the answer is found right away in verse 1. Paul instructs Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. How will the image be healed? By teaching healthy doctrine. That's another way to translate this word sound doctrine. Now, what does that mean? Well, we had learned in the past week that sick doctrine was already being taught in the island. Whole families are upset by this toxic and sick doctrine, this unhealthy doctrine. It's actually making people impure so that they see everything around them as impure. This doctrine is causing people to lack self-control, to not submit to authorities. And Paul is saying, into that world, you must teach the opposite, healthy, sound doctrine. This is the invisible glue that the little fragmented pieces uh, will be put back together on the sculpture. It is the invisible glue, this sound doctrine, that will begin the process of restoring the masterpiece. Paul's point is this, that doctrine is either destroying you or it's restoring you. There is nothing in between. And I fear we're not aware of this. We don't realize that there's a doctrinal battle around us at all points in time. Doctrine coming to us from all directions, battling for our minds. Paul is going to be incredibly, incredibly specific about this way this doctrine is going to make it inroads into our lives in the verses that are to come, verses 2 through 10. But it seems as though he sees two major, major areas in which these doctrines come in and become unhealthy for us, and they lead us to do unhealthy things. It seems as though sound doctrine will always lead us towards more self-control, and unsound doctrine will always turn us away from self-control. Sound doctrine will also lead us to be more under authority, the proper authorities in our life. Unsound doctrine 
will lead us to rebel against proper authorities. Paul is saying, teach sound doctrine, because when properly taught, it will lead to good works. Sound doctrine will teach us how to live a fitting life, a life that goes with the grain, not against the grain. You were made to live a self-controlled life. You were made to be under specific authority, and that is how you will thrive. That is how you will shine forth the image of God to the watching world. And yet all around us, there are people teaching unhealthy, unsound doctrine, telling you to chase down your impulses and become alive because of them. Despise the proper authorities that are over you. Paul's point is this. We have got to teach people sound doctrine so that they learn to rejoice in what is good, despise what is evil. They learn to find peace at times when they ought to experience peace. They learn to be properly distressed during seasons when they ought to be distressed. Without sound doctrine, we will turn towards chaos. It's sound doctrine that is the glue that is going to repair the marred statue, the image of God that you and I are to the watching world. How will the image be restored? When a church community regularly is bathed by teaching that accords with healthy or sound doctrine. But next, let's ask, where will the restoration be most visible? Now, there are a lot of specific instructions in here, and I actually want to go through some of them, but I want you to first take in the big picture. Paul is saying, healthy doctrine restores. And he's saying, when this restoration comes, there is absolutely going to unleash a revolution into the society. But what is this revolution going to look like? What is it going to feel like? Is it going to be uh, marked by seasons of intense piety, uh, phenomenal Bible study, deep prayer, fasting? You know, if sound doctrine is properly taught, are people going to be unable to put their Bibles down? Are they going to memorize large volumes of the Bible? How is sound doctrine going to make inroads into our life? What is it going to look like? And Paul is saying this, when sound doctrine properly comes into your life, it's going to come into incredibly ordinary areas. This is where the restoration is going to appear most visibly. He, I think one of the ways to break down what we're about to see is the restoration is going to appear most visibly in the domestic realm, but also in the vocational realm. That's where sound doctrine is going to come in and transform and upend culture. First, in the domestic realm, where we see older men in verse 2, and Paul's here probably thinking actually of men 40 years or older, life expectancy was shorter at the time, they're to be sober-minded and self-controlled, not controlled by their appetites towards creation, but having their appetites properly directed towards their creator. Though their aging body is breaking, though their minds are weakening, they're to carry themselves with dignity, sound in faith, love, and even endurance. The older women as well, verse 3, are to, to control their tongue, not talk down about others, but to talk up about God, not to be slaves to much wine, numbing themselves from the pains of life, but applying sound doctrine that they might properly engage with the pains in life. Older men, older women in this society are to be pace setters. We can only run as fast as they run ahead of us. They're trailblazers, showing us a path, using the map through our corrupted society to say, here's where you need to go. Here's what you must do. This is a very specific call to the few older women and older men in our church. You must be pace setters. You must be the guide through which we navigate the difficulties of our society as we try to raise children, as we try to move forward. Paul continues in the domestic realm, though, as he instructs younger woman, women uh, with specifics as to what it's going to look like as the image of God is restored in them. And what is it? Are they going to become passionate worshipers of God? 
memorizing long passages of scripture, again, not bad things, things probably Paul would want you to have, but when sound doctrine begins to overwhelm their life, they become more self-controlled and under the proper authorities in their life. They're trained to love their husband and kids. The older women are to urge the younger women to love their husbands and love their kids. Listen, these things don't come easy. It's something that requires some training. And even before COVID made it trendy, they are to work from home. (laughs) I'm I'm kidding. I understand Paul's instructions that they are to work uh, from home or work in the home sounds a little backwards. Is Paul saying that they need to keep in the kitchen? No. Paul is saying their, their way in which they will properly honor God and bring sort of dignity and beauty into the world is through a well-managed home. Paul is not against women working outside of the home. In fact, one of his biggest donors seems to be a woman who was, uh, had been made wealthy by sharing the technology which allowed cloth to be dyed purple. We know from historical data that women did work out of the home. But Paul is instructing these younger women as it relates to their domestic sphere. The older women are to instruct them, love their husbands well, love their children well. This is what it looks like for their lives to line up with sound doctrine. Paul moves on to younger men in verse 6. He only gives one instruction. They're to remain self-control, and apparently he believes that's enough to keep Titus occupied for some time. But Paul doesn't just give instructions in the domestic realm. He also gives instructions in the vocational realm. There's a little bit of that to the younger women, but especially this is clear at the end with slaves to masters. Now, slaves are not chattel slavery that you have in your mind, but it it was not a desirable state to be in. And Paul is saying this, that in the face of having one of the least desirable jobs, a job where you are prone to being mistreated, slaves were to be known for not talking back for being hard workers, not stealing from their employers. My guess is Paul specifically addresses these slaves or these bond servants because it was one of the worst jobs one could have. Many slaves come to know Jesus Christ very early on, and we know there are many slaves in the Roman Empire. My guess is that the slaves had a very difficult problem on their hands. As they understand the Bible, especially as they understand it in light of who Jesus Christ is, they begin to see that their exploitation is not something the Bible would prescribe. And yet Paul is telling them, they too need to be self-controlled. They too need to learn to submit to the proper authorities. He will encourage a slave Onesimus to seek to get out from under slavery if possible, but but he will encourage them to submit to their proper authorities and live self-controlled lives. Now, what is Paul doing? I believe Paul is setting a radical agenda. I believe Paul is is giving us a blueprint to change the world. But what he is doing, you only know this if you're a perceptive reader of the Bible, what he is doing is taking us right back to the days, right after God signed his name on us, his pride and joy, right before this fine work of art of God was struck by the hammer, before the pieces chipped off and went everywhere. God immediately had told his first humans, after he stepped back, observed his signature on his pride and joy, he said this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This was both a command and a blessing at the exact same time. This was the mission the first human beings had. And what happened? Well, as we've been talking about, the image was marred. Satan hopped the line, the protective barrier. And what does he do? How does he strike this image? Does he not get us to question God's word? Does he not get us to question our understanding of God, our doctrine of God? Is he really good? And because 
Satan does this. The image is marred. The chips of marble fly everywhere. Listen, after the piazza was damaged, a team of artists came together again to examine the damage. And they made a plan to make repairs. And a decision was made. They were unable to find all the missing pieces. And so they decided to take a small piece of marble from the back of the sculpture, which would never be seen to the human eye. And using that piece of marble, they were able to repair in great detail the full piazza. And not only that, after they finished their repair work, the piazza was elevated in some senses to almost the state of immortality. A layer of bulletproof acrylic glass was put over the entire statue. At this, this is, a, in a sense for us, the picture of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. God's creation was damaged when the rebel came in and told us to question God's word, to question our understanding of God, our doctrine of God. And how was this image repaired? Did God send his, not send his own son to be beaten to pieces so that he could be the pieces that are the key components to the restoration project? And because of the faithfulness of Jesus who gave up of his very life on that cross, God saw his dead body in the grave and said, death does not have any authority, any right over this body. And God elevated him, resurrected him, and gave him a body with something greater than bulletproof acrylic glass covering it. A body that will never decompose, will never experience corruption. And here's what Paul is telling Titus his assignment is. Jesus has been resurrected. Humanity is never going to be the same. Our project now isn't to defeat death. Death has already been defeated. But what is our calling now? To receive this grace of God, the forgiveness of our sins, the unending life promised in following Jesus, and to take up that old task, the task given to our parents so long ago to be fruitful and multiply and to fill up the earth, fulfilling, uh, put, spreading God's image over the entire earth. Doing this, we obey God at his word as we always were intended to, and we adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in the way our first parents failed. This is Paul's logic. If Titus could just teach over and over and over again this healthy doctrine that there is no need for you to earn your salvation, that salvation is offered to you and guaranteed because of the work of Christ when you lay hold of it by faith, there is nothing left for you to do other than to admit your need of this salvation. And when you lay hold of this salvation, God doesn't stop there. It's not just though you are transposed to heaven or you are in a holding pattern until you get to heaven. Titus was to teach sound doctrine, that salvation comes to you no matter where you are, no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter what your vocation is. And when it comes to you, it never leaves you where you are. It transforms you so that you can shine like a a bright jewel to all the watching world as someone who has rightly organized and ordered her life, his life under the lordship and power and mastery of Jesus Christ. And as you're transformed by lining up your life under the Lordship of Christ, this is how the watching world will step back and watch. The way we raise our children, the way the older men and older women watch out for the younger ones, the way in which we labor and work so that we might uh, cover the earth with the image bearers of God, people rightly ordering their life under the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way the world will step back almost like observers to a museum, and see God's masterpiece and see clearly his signature and come to a place 
where they too will put their lives under the reign and rule of Christ. Let's pray.